So 18, 1 to 12. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will call, cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it into a, again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord, Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. O house of Israel, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent from the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it, does not, if it does evil in my sight, so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I have said. I, will, I would benefit it. Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now from every, one of, from every one of his evil ways, and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, That is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans, and we will every one obey the dictates of his evil heart. Okay, where does God send Jeremiah? A potter. Pot, to the potter's house. Any of you worked with uh, ceramics, with clay? Uh, yeah, some of you have. If you're a public school, you probably have, haven't you? Uh, in art class or whatever, at least we always had to do those things. And uh, what does he tell about? When he sends Jeremiah down to the potter's house, what's Jeremiah supposed to look at? The potter shaping the clay. Yeah. You, you know the wheel that the, the clay's on, and the potter takes his fingers or tool and shapes this clay and tries to make it into whatever he's trying to make it. What happens if it doesn't turn out very good as he's doing that? Smashes it down and starts over again. <coughs> Isn't that true? Because what, what, what is clay? I mean, what kind of consistency does it have? <coughs> what can you do with clay? <coughs> you can mold it. It's moldable. You know, it's like it's... Uh, I don't know, what would you say? It's flexible, it's uh, kind of mushy. <laughs> and so, so you, can, you can shape it and mold it. Now, what do they eventually, once you get the clay, you know, the vase or whatever shape, then what do you do with the clay? Harden it. You harden it, how do you do that? Use it. Yeah, in a what? Okay. Yeah, you fire it in the kiln, and what does that do with the clay? It's no longer mushy. Yeah, it's no longer mushy. <laughs> you get, uh, 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 you know, object fired in the kiln, are you going to be able to smash it down and start over again? No. No, it's very brittle then. We'll look at that in the next chapter because that's the second step of this. But in this chapter, we're thinking about the clay when he's still working with it on the wheel. And so if it doesn't work well, he'll just smash it down and start over again. Now, why is he telling Jeremiah to look at that? What's the lesson he's giving through Jeremiah? I can smash Israel too. Yes! Who's the potter? 
And who's the clay? Israel. Now what's going to happen if God says, say, that uh, I'm going to destroy a kingdom or a nation and they repent? What will God do? He'll relent. He won't destroy it. What's a good example of God saying he was going to punish and then they repented and he relented? Jonah and Nineveh. What if God says I'm going to bless a nation or a people or whatever and then they turn away from God and disobey him? What can he do? Not bless them. Not bless them. He will punish them. God's free to change what he's doing with the clay depending on how the clay reacts. You know, God's going to treat you where you are right now, not where you used to be. Which means, I better stay faithful to God. I can't rely on my track record. You know, well, God, I used to be really strong. <laughs> well, how are you right now? Is he going to want to smash you down and start over again? Now, he says all this to exhort them in verse 11. What is he telling them in verse 11? Basically, like, God's planning to destroy you, but, like, if you turn from your evil ways, then you'll be saved. That's exactly the point. God plans destruction. He's planning a calamity against you, so repent, so he won't do it. You know, there is hope if we'll turn back to God that the punishment he's purposing, he will relent from because he sees we've changed. So he's exhorting them based on this, you guys need to repent. And what do they say back in verse 12? It's hopeless. It's hopeless. Why is it hopeless? We're going to do what we want to do. Yes. It's not hopeless because God's so set in his ways. It's hopeless because the people are so set in theirs. They're just bound and determined to sin and be stubborn and not do what's right. The national sin is so ingrained that repentance is just out of the question for them. They're not about to repent. Isn't that sad? <laughs> now, think about what we learn in this passage in a more general sense. You know, this is the principle of how God deals with a nation, a church, an individual, or whatever. God will change what he's going to do based on the change of the nation, church, person, or whatever. God responds to what we do. Isn't that true? That's an interesting lesson because does God know what you're going to do? That's kind of weird to think about, but he does. So why doesn't God just treat you how he knows you're going to do? He doesn't do it that way. He responds to you where you're at right now. If you're doing well right now, he'll bless you. If you're doing badly right now, he will purpose to punish you. If and when you change, either for the good or for the bad, then that at that point he will change his attitude toward you and what he's doing. He does not treat you like he knows you're going to do. He treats you where you're at right then. That's how God deals with man. And that's this passage. This is a kind of a basic principle of how God deals with people. Comments and questions? Yes. 
Can you imagine how hopeless Jeremiah must feel because God is like, you know, go and tell these people that I'm going to prepare a calamity. We'll be ready. They're not going to repent. They're going to say, oh, we're just going to follow our stubborn heart. But go and tell them anyways. We've got to give them a chance. Yes. It does feel kind of um, disheartening. Like, what's the use? Because that is what God told Jeremiah to begin with. They're not going to listen, so tell them, warn them. I mean, have you ever thought about what that means for us? What if we knew that there'd be nobody else in the world who wanted to obey the Lord? And so if we teach everybody, there's not a single soul who would be converted anymore. If you knew that, should you teach him anyway? Yeah. God wants people taught to have the chance even if they don't accept it. We say, oh, they won't listen, so I won't talk to them. That's not what God says. He told people like Jeremiah, they won't listen, so talk to them. <laughs> Tell them. Warn them. You make sure they have no excuse. We have a responsibility to get the gospel message out. Even to the people, if we had a way to know, they wouldn't respond. I don't know how we know that. Is there a way to really know how people are going to respond to the gospel before we teach them? I don't think there is. But if there were, we still teach it, regardless of what we knew they were going to respond. That's what God wants. Everybody gets the chance, regardless of what he knows they will do with it or not. So he really wants us out there telling everybody. Comments and thoughts. Okay, 13 to 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Ask now among the Gentiles who has heard such things. The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow washer of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, to walk in pathways and not on the highway, to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not face in the and not the face in the day of their calamity. He says, This is unheard of. You ask among the nations. And and there is not even any parallel in the ancient world. What Judah is doing, not even in nature does this happen. And he makes parallels in verse 14 with the snow and the flowing water. And I think about it this way. You know, what are the chances that it's not going to snow in Alaska in the wintertime? Not very good. Not very good. I mean, when does Alaska ever have palm trees? <laughs> what are the chances that's going to happen in the next few years? Never. Never. You know, the Ohio River, any of you know the Ohio River? You've heard of that? What are the chances it's going to dry up in the next couple months? Does it ever dry up? What are the chances that the Mississippi is going to start flowing north? <laughs> Not going to happen? 
No, not going to happen. But God's people act more irrationally than nature. You can trust the snow. It's going to snow in Alaska. You can trust the Mississippi. It's going to flow south. You can't trust God's people. They're going to do all sorts of unpredictable, weird, wrong things that are outside of the natural order. You've just never heard this anywhere else. Nature never does this. Other nations don't do this. I mean, you can depend on the snow and the running water. You can't depend on Israel one little bit. They are just so unfaithful. My people forgotten me. Verse 15, they burn incense to worthless gods. Think about it this way. The nations that worship Baal, did they ever turn their back on Baal? They were faithful to Baal. Baal was no god at all, but they stuck right with him. Here the Israelites are serving the true god and they abandon him. Does that make any sense? That's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? That's what they're doing. You know, they've, they've turned away from the right way, from the ancient paths, to walk on, on, you know, rabbit trails. You know, they're going down dead ends. Maybe you like doing that. You like taking weird roads and seeing what will happen. I remember one time, this was not the brightest uh, moment of my life. But uh, it's been many years ago. It's probably been 30 years ago. That I was taking a group of like three or four other guys to a gospel meeting. And uh, any, any guys in here like shortcuts? I decided, you know, that would be smart. I was going kind of, well, you know, a way that the highway would kind of be the long way around. So I looked on the maps. And I found, you know, there's a way to cut through here. And I thought, that would be really smart. You know, that way I'd save time and money and all that distance. And so I'd just cut through. So that's what I did. But there were roads I'd never been on. And this was up in kind of a hilly area. I was going from like Floyd's Knobs to Pekin. I don't know if any of you know that. Stephen would know a little bit about that. And I got on this one road. And all of a sudden, this road went over a hill and whoom. Straight down. Gravel road, deeply rutted. It was very difficult to like keep the car from bottoming out because there were such ruts in the road. Go down, 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 down. You know what I found when I got to the bottom? A lake. <laughs> like they said, you know, you can't go beyond this. And sure enough, there was a lake there. So here I was at the bottom of nowhere. <laughs> And uh, tried to go back up this uh, gravel road, deeply rutted, just kind of a one-lane thing. We did manage to make it up. Uh, the guys got out and kind of directed me. And, of course, that made the car a little lighter, too, so it was less likely to bottom out. That was a really difficult thing. You know, I would have been a lot better off taking the highway. <laughs> you know, taking this path that ended up down at the lake... You know, it was not really the smartest thing I'd ever done, and I'm lucky I got out of there without damaging my car or my life, you know. But here they have God's highway. And what do they want to do? Take the shortcut. Take this windy path that's going to end in destruction. And they, he says, look, look at what he says in verse 15, the middle part. They've stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths, to walk on bypaths, not on a highway, to make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing, 
everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. Do you see what he's saying about them? What are the people going to think? What are they thinking about Israel and Judah? Why would you do that? How stupid. You know what I figured the guys were thinking that were riding with me? How stupid. That was really embarrassing. It's like here I was with my intelligent shortcut that turned out to be almost a disaster. And here I was taking guys in the car with me who were probably twice my age. I thought, they think I am really stupid. <laughs> they were probably right. Uh, you know, those made it worse. But he says, when you guys reject God's highway to take these stupid shortcuts, people are just going to come by and say, what in the world? How stupid that nation was. They had everything. They had God. And what do they do? No, they want to worship these other gods. And here's what happens to them. You know, because God comes with his east wind and scatters them. And there, they, there you have it. So, you know, wow. It was just dumb. And uh, kind of shameful that they acted this way. Comments and questions? Be careful on shortcuts. Uh, 18 to 23. Then they said, Come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Surely the law is not going to be lost in the in the surely the law is not going to be lost in the priest, nor counsel to this sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. Come and come, come on and let us strike at him with our tongues. Let us give no heed to any of his words. Do not heed to me, O Lord. Do not listen to what my opponents are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? For they have dug a pit for me. Remember how I stood before you to speak good on their behalf. As I turn away your wrath from, the, from them. Therefore, give their children over to famine and deliver them up to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. Let their men also be smitten to death, their young men struck down by the sword in battle. May an outcry be heard from their houses, when you suddenly bring raiders upon them. For they have dug a pit to capture me, and hidden my sna hidden snares from my feet. Yet you, O Lord, know all their deadly designs against me. Do not forgive their iniquity, or blot out their sin from your sight. But, you have but may they be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. So what do you see them doing with Jeremiah here? They're planning to kill him. Yes. They're plotting to do him in. And not to listen to him. Well, if they don't listen to Jeremiah, how are they going to know what the Lord wants? What are they relying on? themselves. And? False gods. Look at verse 18. They, then they said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. They're saying, we have the priests, we have the wise men, we have the prophets, we don't need Jeremiah. We've got all this religious establishment. They're going to tell us what the word of the Lord is. 
Well, were the priests and the wise men and prophets telling them what the word of the Lord was? No. What were they doing? Exactly. The priests, they would end up, you know, doing what they did for a bribe a lot of times. They'd pervert justice. The prophets were false prophets. They'd say whatever the people wanted them to say. They, they were kind of the tail that wagged on the dog. And so these, this religious establishment, they say, we don't need Jeremiah. We got all these guys. But these guys weren't telling them the truth. But it does show you that the whole, you know, hierarchy of religious people in Judah were against Jeremiah. They were opposed to Jeremiah and what he taught. That would be hard. Do you like to go against all of the big shots and all the important people? So, Jeremiah turns to God. You know, think about how desperate it gets. How hard it is to be constantly rejected and scorned. And the people say, don't even listen to him. He's, we, got, we got ways to know the word of God. We don't need him. He says in verse 19, listen to what my opponents are saying. Should good be repaid with evil, they dug a pit for me. So what does Jeremiah want God to do with his opponents? Punish them. Look at 21, 22, and 23. That's what Jeremiah is saying, that he wants to be done against his enemies. How does that sound to you? Pretty harsh. Yeah, that's pretty strong language. You know, give their children over to famine. Deliver them up to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. If you want their wives to become childless and widowed, what are you praying for? The husband to die. The husband and the kids, kids to die. <laughs> that's a kind of a weird way of saying that, but that's how somebody becomes widowed and childless is their husband and their kids die. Uh, so that's what he's saying. Let their men also be smitten to death, their young men struck down by the sword in battle, may an outcry be heard from their houses, when you bring suddenly bring raiders upon them, and so forth and so on, right down to the end of this chapter. How do you feel about Jeremiah talking like this? It doesn't seem like the right attitude to have. It doesn't really seem very good, does it? Seems different than what he said a lot of times. It is different than what he said some of the time. Should he have this attitude? This is kind of a challenging thing for us. Does it remind you of anything else in the Bible? What would be other passages that would be like this in the Bible? Psalms. There are some Psalms like this. You remember any particular ones? What? Break their teeth. What was that one? I don't even remember. Was that 59? 57? What, what any, any stand up? How about Psalm 109, Psalm 69? Um, so remind you of anything in the New Testament? How about, uh, how long, O oh Lord, before you judge and avenge our blood? 
the souls underneath the altar in Revelation 6, crying out for vengeance against their persecutors. This is a challenging passage. And I would say the Psalms that say things like this are also challenging passages. And there are some things that really kind of uh, stun you when you read them. Uh, like, how blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. That's the end of Psalm 137. Doesn't sound very, um, like a very good attitude. So, what, what, do we, what should we think about these things? Well, let me suggest two or three things. What does God want done to wicked people who won't repent? God want wicked people who won't repent to be punished? Is that a very good attitude on God's part? Because they're going against what he says and they won't change. And they ought to be punished by what's right. Holiness and righteousness says people who won't repent and who continue to oppose God His word ought to be punished. And God wants them to be punished. Would God like for them to repent so he can save them? <coughs> yes. But if they won't repent, does God want them to be punished? So should we want them to repent and be saved if they will? And if they refuse that, should we want them to be punished? Shouldn't we want the same thing God wants? I mean, you know, if God wants it, we ought to too. I think here we're looking at you know, people who refuse to repent. People who are determined to oppose God. And it looks to me like Jeremiah is praying for the very same things that God has said. In fact, almost all the things he says here, you can find God saying them earlier in Jeremiah. That God was going to punish him with famine and the sword and leave them widowed and uh, have mothers with no children, that God wouldn't listen to their cries, that God wouldn't hear them, etc. So I think Jeremiah is just praying for God's will to be done and for God to punish the ones who refuse to repent. How long has Jeremiah been preaching by this chapter? Here's the problem. There is no time frame given in these chapters from chapter 1 over to chapter 21, there's not a time marker anywhere. When we start getting time references in 21, it's all over the board. It's not in chronological order at all. So we don't really have a clue. <laughs> yeah. Steve. I think it's funny, you know, how many times, you know, when we're reading this, you know, it's, it's hilarious in how Israel never learns. And yet, they just keep doing the same stuff over and over and over. And that's just an example, you know, they never learn. Don't people who won't learn and constantly rebel against our God, shouldn't they be punished? You know, you think about this. I don't want to be too graphic, but, but let's just take, this is bad, but, but what about, you know, there are some, you know, parents, maybe they're totally irresponsible. And they like really hurt their children, even their babies. I mean, every once in a while you hear of a parent who will like, you know, 
do some really mean, cruel punishment of a child, you know, beating them in a way that's just not right, shaking them away that's not right, sometimes even worse things than that. What ought to be done to somebody who would hurt an innocent child like that? Should they be punished? Would it be right for us to say, oh, well, <laughs> you know, whatever. That wouldn't be right, would it? Don't we feel anger and, and like that ought not to be tolerated? You know, I think if we can just look at some, some adult just abusing a child, an innocent child, and say, oh, well, I don't care. I don't think that's the right attitude. I think we ought to care and ought to, ought to bother us. But now think about this. Should, who should we love more? God or innocent children? What should we think about people who defy God? Who know what God says and they just refuse to obey Him? Should that bother us? Should we just say, oh well, you know, I, I, I hope God doesn't do anything to them, you know. I hope they're okay. I know they've disobeyed God, they defy God, they, you know, spit in God's face, but I don't really care. Do we love man more than God? You know, it ought to bother us when people who ought to know better refuse to serve God after repeated warnings, they ought to be punished. I think we struggle with having a strong enough attitude against sin against God. We don't so much struggle with a strong attitude against sin against people, especially little people. <laughs> you know, because we see them as being innocent and defenseless. But we love God more than we love people. It really ought to bother us that People don't serve God. Steve? I think it's just sometimes people are just afraid to stand up for what they believe. That could be. That could be. But sometimes we don't have much passion for God. You know, we may not care very much about God's will being done. Sometimes we're not very concerned about doing it ourselves. Alicia? How do you draw the line between being angry about sin and having a Christian attitude towards it? Two things, I think. First of all, we try to think like God would think. How does God draw the line? Did he send Jesus to die for wicked people? Yes. Does he love them and want them to be saved? Yes. When they refuse to repent, does he want to punish them? Yes. So I think we have to have that same balance. I think we struggle, we sometimes go from one side to the other. We ought to want their salvation, want them to repent, want them to be saved, but if they refuse, then we want them to be punished. That's one thing. Another thing that, you know, we need to do in that, see, I lost my train of thought on what my other point was going to be. Um, ask your question again. How do you draw the line between um, being angry at sin and having a Christian attitude towards the person? Okay, I know what else I was going to say. And that is, does God want us, ourselves, to punish wicked people? No. What are we supposed to do? Let him do it. Let him do it. We, it is it right to pray, God, punish wicked people who don't repent? Yes. But it's not right for us to say, okay, you did something wrong, you're not repenting, therefore I'm going to punish you. No, that's not our job. So that's a part of it also. We leave it in the hands of God. We don't try to, you know, you hear people sometimes like, um, oh, um, we'll kill 
uh, people who run abortion clinics or something. No, that's not right. That's not our job. Should people who kill innocent children be punished or killed? Yes, but that's God's business, not mine. Megan. A perfect example of that is David, when, like, so many times when he was near Saul, but he didn't do anything to him. Yes, because he knew it wasn't his job. He was God's anointed. God will deal with it. That's exactly right. Did it mean Saul shouldn't be punished? No. But David wasn't the one God commissioned to do that. So we never take matters into our own hands. We never try to punish people ourselves. Legend. So then where do you draw the line between the, like what people use a lot, especially with the justice system, is eye for eye, tooth for a tooth, and like life for a life. And so then where do you draw the line between letting God punish the people and letting the justice system? Great question. And the answer to that is Romans 12 and 13, which I think answers that very clearly and is very helpful. In the end of Romans 12, he says just what we were saying. He says in verse 19 of Romans 12, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then the very next chapter, he says, 13.1, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Verse 4, the government is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. God establishes the government to punish wicked people, to take vengeance for him. Were there times in the Old Testament God wanted a David to punish some wicked people? Yes. God used the nation of Israel sometimes to punish wicked people. God uses the government today as his avenger to bring his vengeance upon wicked people. And that should be done, basically, the eye for an eye and the life for a life. That would be the principle of justice that the government ought to use. So when the government is just and fair, that's a minister of God, an avenger God uses. That is leaving place for God to do it because God authorized the government to do it. He didn't authorize me as an individual citizen to take matters into my own hands and do it on my own authority. Very good question. Other thoughts? So what about Phineas when he speared the people that were doing wrong and was blessed for it? I think he did it for the Lord with God's authority. He was the grandson of Aaron. And God, I think, wanted people to stand up for him and physically oppose the wicked. Now, obviously, we don't have full information sometimes about everything that God says, but it appears that God wanted the Israelites at that point, by his authority, to kill the wicked people. There are times when God has authorized that. Even in the Old Testament, there were sometimes God authorized an individual to do something against another individual or group of people. But God has not authorized us to do that today individually, only through the government. When God says to do it, then it's right. And, but if God doesn't give us the authority to do it, then we have no right to just give ourselves the authority to do it. 
But we certainly can pray that God's will be done and that he punish those who refuse to repent. Because that's what God wants to do. That's what God thinks is right. Therefore, that's what we ought to want him to do and what we ought to think is right. Good, good discussion. Other questions or comments on uh, in Romans, but any of the stuff in uh, Jeremiah 18. How do we know at what point people are refusing to return? At what point do we pray for their destruction specifically? Well, I think that's one of the reasons we leave the actual execution of the vengeance in the hands of God. I'm not sure we do know. So we may at times pray generally, God, you know the hearts of the people. And if you know they won't repent, then punish them. Not that we always would know. Uh, you know, I don't know more than that. Maybe there are times that somebody just consistently rejects the Lord and the gospel, and thus it becomes pretty obvious. You certainly have some passages in the New Testament like 2 Peter 2 and Jude that talk about some really rebellious false teachers that clearly are not repenting and, and you have some strong statements made. So maybe somebody just refusing God's offer frequently makes us be able to see by their fruits they have an evil hardened heart. But also I think we can say we don't always know but God does. Other questions or comments? Okay. Um, chapter 19, it's a 